The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter 18, Tempest Fugit. I don't know what she's talking about, protested Candace. I've never seen this woman before. Oh, don't hand me that, countered Darcy. We met you at that big red farmhouse. We went there to ask for food because we heard that your town farm thing had lots of food. No! Landers looked at Martin, as if expecting him to explain what was happening. Martin looked at Stuba, who had the same look. You were all peaches and cream then, said Darcy, all smiley-smiley-like. When we told you about Jason Buck, you said you had a friend who might have some work for them. Absurd! This woman is making things up to distract you from her role in the deaths of Earl and Edith. Candace tried to engage her condescending smile, but it flickered on and off like an old neon sign. The people around her were beginning to develop icy stares. She told Jace where to meet her friend, out where the power line crosses the highway, said Darcy. Lenders had let go of her by this point. Pat was as caught up in the drama as everyone else. We all went along for that first meeting that night, continued Darcy. Jobs are impossible to find nowadays. We all wanted to know what sort of work her friend had. Meeting him at night was weird. But we weren't about to ask any questions. This big black SUV comes rolling down the power line trail with its lights off. The man never got out of the car, but I could tell he was tall and hadn't missed any meals. I wanted to eat good like he obviously was. He promised us all the food we wanted. He promised Jace those fancy guns. He promised Buck he'd get him a woman. Nonsense, protested Candace weakly. She, she's making it all up. He promised Matt and I a warm, dry house. We all said yes to what he wanted. I mean, why should we care about that stupid dairy barn? It wasn't doing us any good. Uh, did the man in the SUV tell Jace or Buck to kill the Altmans? Martin asked. He was still thinking of Cameron's trial, even though it was being hijacked by Darcy and Candace. No, that was just Buck being mad about getting gypped. But if she hadn't gotten Buck and the SUV man together, none of this would have happened. People leveled stern scowls at Candace. A few rows back, someone mused out loud, I wonder if she tipped off the big man about Clyde's corn. Candace stood up suddenly, knocking over the lady beside her. She pushed her way into the aisle and ran for the double doors. Several men in the crowd ran after her. Martin wasn't sure why he bolted into a run after her, too, but he did. Was it some sort of canine instinct to chase anything that ran? A knot of men thundered down the stairs. Martin vaulted over the banister to land on the lower flight of the stairs, ahead of the knot of men. He landed hard and stumbled, but stayed on his feet. Candace burst out the front door, down the steps of Town Hall, and ran down the circular driveway toward her house across the street. For a woman in her late sixties, she was remarkably limber. Two of the men from the audience ran faster than Martin. They pulled ahead, hounds in a focused frenzy to catch the fox. Candace leapt up her front steps, but fumbled at the door. 
She got inside and nearly got the door closed, but the hounds battered it open with their shoulders. In doing so, however, they lost their footing and fell onto the living room floor. Martin was right behind them. He had no time to stop, so he jumped. He cleared the fallen men, but landed badly. He rolled onto one shoulder, but managed to get his feet underneath him again. Candace was halfway up the flight of stairs. Martin was close on her heels. She pushed through the bedroom door and threw herself against it to slam it shut. Without thinking, Martin thrust his arm into the gap to keep the door from closing and locking. The door crunched against his forearm, sending hot jolts of pain up Martin's arm. With his remaining inertia, he threw his shoulder against the door. Charles and Tyler topped the stairs as Martin pushed into the bedroom. Candace grabbed a handheld radio off of the dresser. Help! Help! she shouted into the radio. I need an extraction! Extraction! She backed into the far corner of the room. Charles swatted the radio out of her hand. It skidded across the hardwood floor. Martin grabbed a hold of her wrist and held on. She twisted and writhed like a fox in a leg-hold trap. With her former radio hand, she squeezed a handful of her shirt below the neckline. Martin then noticed the bead chain around her neck. Charles noticed, too. He yanked her hand away, grabbed the bead chain, and snapped it off her neck. The pendant was an innocuous gray plastic football shape with a red button. The rest of the angry crowd had made it up the stairs and streamed into the room. The more zealous among them were pulling each other out of the way in order to get at Candace. They shouted that they planned to kill her, to tear her apart. The frenzy of the crowds sent a cold chill down Martin's back. The people had become a murderous mob, almost animals. Arms swung in, landing blows on Candace's head. Martin tried to parry the swings he could see. He tried to pull his body between her and the flailing mass of arms and fists. This was not how they should be dealing with Candace. They were like hungry sharks. Blood in the water would be a terrible thing for them. No, Martin shouted, not like this. Hands tried to pull him aside. He held on to Candace's wrist. Stop! He was struck in the ribs. Another blow struck his ear. You can't just kill! He felt a sharp blow on the side of his head. It stung. Arms pulled. Fists. He reached to deflect a swing. Candace screamed. He could feel her body recoil from the blows that he couldn't see. Shouting, arms, hands grabbing. Then it sounded like the people were shouting into pillows, muffled noises. He felt like he was falling. He wasn't. He was turning. No, he was standing. He could see scuffling feet and legs. Uh, there was a pale green rug. Martin became aware of a man shouting. It was Charles's voice. He opened his eyes. Boot heels. Many boots stood lined up on the pale green rug. Her kitchen is full of those FEMA packs, someone shouted. She let us starve while she ate like a queen. Get her! Everybody just stand back, Charles shouted. Martin rolled onto his side, then onto one knee. Lined up in front of him, across the corner of the room, were Tyler, Landers, Stuba, Charles, and Dustin. In the very corner of the room, behind Martin, Candace leaned against the walls, sobbing. One sleeve was ripped off her coat. Her hair was pulled down, a 
a gray rag mop over her eyes. Blood dripped onto the front of her shirt. "'Why are you protecting her?' shouted someone. "'Why do you care about this traitor?' "'I don't care about her,' said Charles. "'It's us I care about, all of us. Look at you. You're ready to tear her apart with your bare hands.' Martin stood slowly. Dustin saw him and lent a hand. Martin's head throbbed. He could see the mob at the other side of the room, a couple of dozen men and women. One had a broken chair-leg club. Some had kitchen knives. Others had fists. "'We can't let ourselves turn into animals,' said Landers. "'Yes, she's done some terrible things and must pay, but not like this. This is not how human beings behave.' Kill her like this, continued Charles, and where will it stop? How long before we'll all be killing each other? There was a long pause. The two groups stared at each other. The radio, laying up against the wall, crackled to life. Stay put, the deep voice said. We will get you. Ah, the man with the chair leg pointed at the radio. That proves it. She's been selling us out to that Quinn. I'm gonna... He lunged toward the line of men, his chair leg raised to strike. Dustin aimed the high point at the man. Stuba aimed his clock. The man stopped, conflicted. Nobody is gonna do anything to anybody, said Charles. Not like this. This is all a huge misunderstanding, said Candace. She pushed the hair out of her face and wiped the blood off her lip with the back of her hand. I've been trying to help you, don't you see? She tried her compassionate smile. But it was old Neon, too. Help us! The man with the chair leg sounded outraged. Yes, help you, said Candace. You would all starve yourselves and let your children starve because of your foolish pride. You needed help, but refused to accept it. We don't need their help, said a man in the crowd. Oh, but you do, insisted Candace. People nowadays can't survive without proper supplies. They need safe, properly prepared food. Without modern essential services, people die. I don't want any of you to die. Can't you see that? We were finding ways to make it, protested a knife woman. Oh, you were only fooling yourselves, countered Candace. That corn wouldn't last. It was a false hope. The milk from all those cows is unsafe. You'll all get sick. There are no doctors to help you. And now you've been reduced to eating tree bark. How low will you sink before you come to your senses and let them help you? Their kind of help killed the Altmans, said someone. And, added Martin, I think they gave that Manchester gang guns and told him to come out here and rob us. My aunt and uncle died because of them, Charles scowled. No, 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 said Candace. That was all a horrible mistake. They did not tell those ruffians to kill anyone. They don't want to hurt anyone. They said so plainly. It was just to make you realize how much danger there is in the world, how much you need them to protect you. They respect all life and only want to help. The crowd murmured disagreement. 
I still say she ought to stand trial, said Chairleg Man. I'm not sure what law she broke, said Stuba, more to himself than anyone. Maybe accessory to murder? What are we going to do with her? asked a man with a kitchen knife. We can't just let em waltz in here and take her. She'd be getting off scot-free. Martin glanced at the wreck that was Candace. She had hardly gotten off scot-free. Yet they had a point. What should they do with her? How would Quinn's men come to get her? Would there be armored vehicles, heavy weapons, dozens of men? How would they prevent them from rescuing Candace? How would they even know where to look for her? She could have radioed from anywhere. Uh, <coughs> Charles! Martin's voice was garbled with phlegm. He coughed. <coughs> Charles, where's, where's that thing she was wearing? I think it's a GPS beacon. Charles looked puzzled. He glanced around the floor. There it is! He raised his foot to crush the little plastic pendant. No, wait, Martin said. Why? Uh, I don't know. Hold on. Uh, I, I had a thought, but my head still feels thick. Martin rubbed his head with both hands. Why did crushing the beacon seem like a bad idea? He knew for a moment, but the thought was gone. The cobwebs cleared. Uh, wait, that thing is how they know where she is, Martin said. If there's no signal, they'll know it's been destroyed. They'll have to search house to house. Let em, shouted Chairleg Man. I'll shoot every last one of the— No, Martin said. Think about it. They have big weapons. They have the manpower. They have the armor. You might get one. You might get two. But how many of your family will they get in the process? We might beat them back once, maybe twice. But at what toll? Is that really what we want? What, then? We just let them take her? Martin began to pace. Hold on now, let me think. If Quinn's men arrived and found only the pendant, they still would not know where Candace was, but they would all be in one place, Candace's house. Was that some sort of tactical advantage? Would that give the men of Cheshire an opportunity? An opportunity to do what? We should hold her hostage, said a woman with a kitchen knife. Make them give back that corn they stole to get her back. Yeah, said another. Trade Candace for the corn. We'll get the better end of that deal. We could leave a note beside that uh, beeper thing. It seemed like a weak idea to Martin, but he wasn't coming up with anything better. He couldn't imagine Quinn giving Cheshire back Clyde's corn. That would be too big of a blow to his pride, and he seemed like a very prideful man. Would his men simply leave Cheshire without Candace? Would that be their no answer? He had a hard time imagining Quinn's men would begin to search houses once they knew it was a hostage-swap situation. They would have no idea where to look, and they might not have brought enough men with them for a full-scale house-to-house search. They would know that the residents would be ready to fight. Would Quinn's men really feel like taking the risk to get Candace? His mind was still trying to think of tactics. Uh, when would they come? Martin asked Tyler and Charles. How soon? Uh, how much time do you think we have? Tyler knit his brow. 
Charles glanced at the floor. Night, said Tyler. Charles nodded. An extraction is almost always done in the middle of the night. Lower visibility to hostiles. They'll use night gear and come in the dark. We have some night gear, Charles said to Tyler. You've got that scope thing. I've got my old binox. We could set up an observation post and watch them come in. Watch them what? asked Stuba. Come in and take Candace? What's the point of watching that? No, 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 said Charles. She won't be here. We'll hold her at Town Hall. We'll watch them go in and read the ransom note. Corn for Candace. If they want to play rough, we'll have a heads up and be ready for them. Have people stationed all around to stop them. And if they come in APCs or something, countered Tyler, even if they only come in one of those bearcat things, they're weighted to withstand fifty cal fire. We don't have anything that heavy. Molotovs, chairleg man said. Martin recalled what they had heard on the radio during the fighting in Ohio. The civilians used Molotovs to force three tanks back. And they'll have tear gas, too, Stuba said. An old Palestinian guy told me a trick to defeat tear gas, said Tyler. Come on, we've got a lot to do, and it's nearly dark already. Martin turned to Dustin. Man, I wish I hadn't taken apart that night vision monocular. It would have been handy now. Oh, I, uh, I fixed it. Dustin said. I wanted to use it on my night watches. It wasn't as handy as I thought, uh, but it's working. Should I run home and get it? Yeah. Uh, by the way, where's my carbine? I gave it to Mom. Okay, bring it here. Then you get Mom and the others home and come back with the monocular. You mean I get to be part of the stakeout? Dustin seemed excited at the prospect. Well, don't sound so eager. It could get nasty. But we'll need every able body with a gun here in town. Margaret, Judy, and Carlos can defend the house. I don't think the fight will go in that direction, but the house should be covered. Dustin ran out of Candace's house with a wide smile on his face. Martin and Landers took Candace to town hall. To his credit, Cameron was still standing in the auditorium. When Pat returned, she suggested that Martin ask for a dismissal, which he did. Stuba released the handcuffs. Cameron was free. He offered to get his thirty thirty and help defend Town Hall. Stuba accepted the offer. Charles set up on the porch roof, behind the sign that said Cheshire Town Hall. He had his night-vision binoculars and one of the M4s. Tyler set up behind the post office. He had eight armed men with him. Other groups, from other companies were arrayed in a semicircle around Candace's little house. Radio use was to be limited to a word or two at most, so scanners would be less likely to find their channel. The note was left on Candace's bedroom dresser, beside the tracker pendant. An LED lantern was left lit beside it. Opinions were mixed as to whether Quinn would accept the deal or reject it. Either way, Quinn's men would sneak into town, get the note, and sneak out. No one expected an answer that night. Just in case it turned nasty, Tyler told the others about bandanas soaked in vinegar and swim goggles as their best bet if tear gas was thrown at them. He told them to kick the canisters away, not to pick them up. They would be extremely hot. 
Martin set up his position in the stairwell of Town Hall. He could look down across the street. Candace's driveway, front yard, and porch were easily visible. The holding cell was full with Matt and Darcy. They certainly couldn't leave Candace in there with them. Lander's solution was to tie Candace to the banister. That way, they could watch her and still get the news from Martin and his radio. The repaired night vision monocular worked as before. Martin disliked how the bright green screen ruined his natural low-light vision, but in this instance it seemed like a necessary trade-off. Candace continued to try to convince Landers that she meant no one any harm, that she was only trying to get them food and supplies. Landers grew tired of her harangues, so he gagged her. That seemed prudent, lest she shout out to Quinn's men. The night dragged on. Ten o'clock, eleven o'clock. The silence began to dull Martin's mind. At least on night watches, at home, there was always some night noises to keep him focused. All he had now was the sound of people's breathing in the pitch-black stairwell. It was rhythmic enough to encourage dozing. His radio clicked three times. That was the signal from the outpost on West Road that someone had passed their location. Whoever they were, they were on their way. Martin could feel his heart rate pick up and his breathing grow shallow. He stared into the grainy green snow of his viewer. Tyler warned everyone with night vision to put electrical tape over their IR illuminators. He didn't want Quinn's men to get any infrared beacons on their locations. Without the illuminator, all Martin's old Gen 1 device could see was from the scant natural light, which wasn't much. He had to periodically focus on Candace's faintly lit bedroom window or on her neighbor's split-rail fence for his mind to make sense of the indistinct dim images. The radio clicked four times. They passed the old school, Martin whispered for those behind him. You should be seeing something soon, Landers whispered back. Hold on, Martin gasped. I see something. Silhouetted against the snow-covered roadway, one dark mass slowly glided up beside the split-rail fence. It didn't move like a tracked vehicle. From the shape of the silhouette, Martin could guess that it wasn't a full-sized armored personnel carrier. Two bearcats! Tyler's voice was a rushed whisper. Martin saw a second black mass pull up beside the first. He watched where the doors would be, expecting to see a change in the black silhouette, or the silhouette of legs, but nothing happened. They're just sitting there, Martin whispered over his shoulder. They're not doing anything. What's up with that? Dustin asked. Are they waiting to make sure no one noticed him arrive? Checking in with headquarters, maybe? I wonder what they'll do when they read that note, whispered Landers. I still can't imagine how that'll go. Hold on, Martin gasped. Something's moving out there. They're getting out? asked Landers. Uh, how many do you see? I, I don't know. It's not, it's not a door opening, but something is moving. It's higher up on the side. There was a sudden flash of light that overwhelmed Martin's night vision scope. There was a dull thud. 
Martin squinted and pulled back. The front porch of Candace's house erupted into flames. Night vision was no longer necessary. The bright orange fire lit up the yard. A second flash, a rocket of some kind, flew from the lead bearcat, penetrating the upstairs bedroom window. All of the second-floor windows belched orange flame. They just blew up her house! The bearcats quickly backed up and disappeared into the darkness. It would seem that Quinn wasn't interested in negotiating for Candace's release. Looks like the town is stuck with her, and still don't have the corn. This episode was a bit shorter than average. Chapter 18 was on the longer side, so I decided to split it into two episodes. The blowing up of Candace's house seemed like a good point to pause. If you're enjoying the story, and I kind of presume you are if you've stuck with me this far, consider sharing this podcast with a friend. Given all that's going on in the world these days, the notion of an economic collapse and social collapses doesn't seem too far-fetched anymore. A story about how a group of people deal with all that might interest them. Thanks for listening.